This season, I have teamed up with Blue Microphones. I have been a huge fan of their products for years now. My partner actually gave me a Blue Yeti microphone for my birthday a couple of years ago, and that's what I used to record season one. So to now be working together on season two is just so great. Blue's award-winning products have helped countless podcasters, musicians, YouTube creators, and Twitch streamers find and amplify their voices. So, if you're looking to share your passion with the internet, definitely check out Blue Mics. Hello, I'm Antonia Preville and you are listening to The Most of It, a podcast where I endeavour to find the answer to one big question. How do we make the most of our lives? In today's show, I am talking with a specialist relationship counsellor, Janine Bird, who is the director of the Relationship Rescue Clinic based in St Heliers in Auckland. Janine has worked with hundreds of couples on all sorts of issues, from wanting more happiness and spark in their relationships, to overcoming immense grief, heartbreak, mistrust and abuse. Janine shares her incredibly insightful perspectives and advice that are the combination of her work, her research, and also her personal experience in being part of and managing to get away from an unhealthy, abusive relationship. We do talk about this experience and other factors relating to abuse, so please note this may be upsetting for some listeners. So... What mistakes are we making in our relationships? And where do our behaviours that perhaps we don't like so much stem from? And more importantly, what techniques can we learn to strengthen our relationships? Through a biological lens and speaking from extensive experience, Janine takes us through a number of really relatable scenarios and points out why the behaviour is taking place, how it's affecting the other person, and how to apply simple tools to even the smallest of arguments to really help improve the quality of our relationships, which is what we all want to do, right? It's really, really great stuff. I loved talking to Janine and got so much out of it. So if you've got a loved one nearby, I reckon it's worth settling in together and having a listen. Hello, Janine. Hello, Antonia. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to have you as part of this conversation. And it's actually really lovely to be in the same room as you because most of the time I have to do these interviews via Zoom, which is fine, but it's really nice to have you right in front of me. (laughs) It's lovely to be here. And yeah, it is a privilege for us in New Zealand to be able to do this, isn't it? And and give you a hug on a ride. Yeah, I know. That was so, so nice. Mm -hmm. Well, I really wanted to have you on this season because you have a wealth of experience and knowledge in how to navigate relationships, on how to improve them and how to leave them if they are not ultimately right for you. And I feel like that information is so relevant to this ongoing conversation that we have on this series of how to make the most of our lives because love and the quality of our relationships is so central to our experience of our lives, isn't it? It is. It absolutely is. I mean, it's the fundamental thing that brings us the most happiness when it works. Uh, 
preacher once told me, who um, had attended a lot of deathbeds, that the thing people say on the deathbed, the thing that matters most is, have I loved well and have I been loved? Wow, that's it. That's it. Nothing else matters but yeah. that. I, I mean, I, I do relate to that. Everything else is sort of window dressing, isn't it? Because if those fundamental elements of your close relationships, if they are not in a good place, it's very hard to enjoy anything else, isn't it? To feel good about anything else. Yeah. It affects every part of your life, your work, your happiness, your health, everything if it's going wrong and Mm -hmm. everything positively if it's going right. Yeah. So what drew you to this area? What drew me to this area? I mean, I spent a long time in counselling, starting off with counselling teenagers and working with teenagers that worked with families as well. And one of the things I realised working with families early on was that when you have a good, strong, happy parental relationship, it helps to have a good, strong family relationship. And that helps deliver nice, happy people into the world. When those break down, that's where the problem children were a lot of the time. And so that kind of stuck and sat in the back of my mind, but I just um, did a lot of individual counseling for quite a long time. And it wasn't until my own uh, relationship was not the most ideal. My, um, my marriage to my husband was very unhealthy. And being in that, I could not understand why it was unhealthy because I had all these counseling skills and all these communication skills and I knew how to do nonviolent communication from being an anti-bullying expert. So I knew how to do it right, but it wasn't working. Wow. So more than anyone, you should be someone who's not in a toxic relationship, and yet here you are. And yet I was. I was in a very abusive relationship. It was financially abusive, extremely financially abusive, emotionally abusive. And by the time it got to starting to be a bit more sexually abusive, that was the final straw of leaving. But in love has always been so, so very important to me. And it was so desperately something that I wanted to make work. And when my marriage didn't work, I wanted to find out why didn't it work? Was it my fault? Of course, coming out of an abusive relationship, you're constantly told it is your fault. You're the problem. So was it my fault? So in that process of going through counseling and figuring out all of the ins and outs and what was going on in my head and what was going on around, I figured out what did I need to take responsibility for and what I didn't. But in all of that, I realized, actually, when you're in a relationship with an abusive partner, you actually can't do much about it unless they're willing to acknowledge the abuse and they're willing to change. Right. Um, And that just led me to want to work with couples to make sure that as many couples as possible didn't accidentally get into abusive relationships. Because I really do believe that there's a a lot of abusive partners who don't want to be abusive, who really want to change. There's a lot of abusive partners who don't realize they're being abusive, especially when it comes to emotional abuse and coercive control. It may be something that they're just used to. It may be that's the way they get a sense of safety in the world. So I wanted to just make sure that as many couples as possible didn't get into that horrible place and also help those couples who were just wanting to have a normal relationship or did have a normal relationship just make the best and the happiest relationship they could possibly have. So I just kind of engross myself in couples training and couples work and reading about couples and reading about relationships and love. With this experience from the inside that 
I imagine is more valuable than any theoretical training you could ever have. Yeah, I really don't think you can ever understand what it's like to be in an abusive relationship unless you've actually been in an abusive relationship. I don't think you can understand the power dynamic, how incredibly trapped you are, how difficult it is to escape with a system that doesn't support you, that acts as another arm of the abuser to punch you and knock you down more and shame you. It's so difficult to get out. It's so scary if you have kids because the system also is manipulated and can get you in positions where you're going to lose your kids. Mm. So that's especially for women. Well, I mean, for men as well, it's a huge fear. And so, you know, it takes a lot of strength. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of time filling out court documents Mm. or just researching how to get out and it takes a lot of courage Mm. to leave so for those people who've left those relationships when they've tried everything and they've tried to get help and nothing's changed so they've had to leave I think they're some of the strongest people in the world because years and years of abuse and trauma and being worn down and told you nothing and told you can't do things and then having the courage to go and do it and make the change and start all over again, which often you're starting from nothing. Mm. You've got no money Mm. and you're having to build your life back up again. And they're amazing people. I think they're amazing. But I also think those abusers who do recognize it and they do change their behavior they're amazing too because mm-hmm. they show an incredible amount of courage to mm-hmm. own what they've done, to sit with their shame, to make amends to the people they've hurt. That takes a huge amount of courage too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they're equally as brave and they're the ones that are going to stop that cycle being passed down from generation to generation. The stops so, with them. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much for sharing that. It's also, I think, very brave for you to publicly share that. So thank you. Just picking up on one thing you said earlier about it was the quality of the relationships of the children that you were dealing with, um, which affected those children's behaviors. I was interested to know how much our experiences as children impacts our ability to be in, in positive relationships as adults impacts them hugely. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It has a huge impact. Basically what you've got to realize is if you think of your brain as being like a computer, when you're born, it comes preloaded with a certain amount of software, right? But from the moment that you're born, your brain is learning about the world based on the experiences you have in the world and every experience it has it creates meaning on that experience and it combines experiences and meanings. And that creates the new programming. It's like the new programming that's been downloaded. And then you see the world through that programming. Like a computer, it can't process anything other than through the programming it's been downloaded with. Part of the programming that you downloaded with is going to be the experiences you have as a child that have hurt you or damaged you in some way. Mm -hmm. Now, most parents do not set out to hurt or damage their children or, you know, leave them with traumas. But because as children, our survival is so dependent on being in connection and in loving relationship with our parents, that relationship is something that we're really sensitive to. And our brains are kind of hardwired to being sensitive to it at that stage. The other problem with that is, though, is that children are very egocentric, so they make everything about them. Mm. So when, for example, mum comes in 
And, you know, six-year-old little Jimmy is sat playing on the floor with his dinosaurs, but he's left his Lego out. And mum comes in and stands on the Lego and it's like, oh my God, Jimmy, how many times have I told you to put this Lego away? You know, you just never listen to it. You never learn. And then she storms off into the kitchen to start dinner. Well, Jimmy now is brokenhearted and feeling disconnected from mum. Mm. Now, in the child's world, he doesn't think, oh, mum's just upset or maybe she's had a hard day or, you know, maybe something else is going yeah. on. The child thinks, mum is angry with me, mum doesn't like me, mum doesn't love me anymore. The brain sees that as, oh, no, you're going to be abandoned by the family and you're going to die. That's it, yeah. And so it goes into, oh, my God, how do I recover this relationship? And how do I get back in connection with them? So as a child, we then figure out different ways of navigating back into relationship. Now, for some children, that may be having a tantrum because any attention is good attention. For some, it may be running off and sulking because eventually, you know, mum or dad comes to give them a hug and soothe them. For others, it's pleasing. Mm. And so maybe in this scenario, little Jimmy thinks, oh, I know, I'm going to draw mum a lovely picture to make her happy and write, I love you, mummy, on it. So he does that. He spends ages drawing this little picture and goes into mum in the kitchen with his picture. But mum's in the middle of a conference call on the phone and she's trying to, you know, cook dinner at the same time. And it's like, mum, mum, tugging on her leg, you know, love you, mummy. And she's in the middle of fall. She's like, how many times have I told you, Jim, you don't interrupt me on the call. Get out from under my feet. Will you just go away? And it's another rejection. So, And these are all very happens, normal, commonplace normal things, right? Things. Yeah. Obviously, mum has not gotten in danger. <laughs> but what happens then is that ends up as what we call kind of like old childhood wounds. Mm. And they get brought into our adult relationships. So Jimmy feels like he's not good enough been misunderstood his intention wasn't to hurt mum when he left the lego out and all of that sort of thing so when it comes into adult relationship he's going to have a sensitivity around being misunderstood Mm. um, and maybe not good enough or rejected or things like that so then that comes out in other ways we have no clue maybe where it's coming from but maybe you know one day Jim is loading the dishwasher to try and help out in around the house, thinking his partner will feel really happy and loved by this expression of helping. And his partner does feel happy and loved by this expression of helping. But she comes along and says, oh, you know, Jimmy, if you put the little plates here and the big cups there, you're going to get more in. Now, Jimmy's all sensitive about not being good enough and <laughs> he's being rejected, so he doesn't see it as her trying to help. He sees it as, being I've not done it good enough, mm. I'm being rejected, you know. Uh, what I'm doing to try and repair is being rejected. And so that old childhood wound will pop up. And then what you've got ha- coming into the picture isn't adult Jimmy. Then you've got little Jimmy coming up. Yeah. Who then, rea- who then reacts is like, don't tell me how to load the dishwasher. Nothing I do for you is good enough. I'm just trying to do something nice. I can't even do something nice for you. And you've got to criticize me. Uh, I mean, this just sounds so normal and commonplace because we were all children and our parents were doing their best, but all, all these things you described are so sort of everyday happenings, aren't they? So we, we all, every single one of us carries around these wounds that we We carry around loads of them. <laughs> and once you get rid of one of them, another one's going to pop up. So how do we uh, navigate that, <laughs> Janine? I mean, is it about learning about yourself and recognising what those wounds might be and noticing when we, you're triggered and... 
trying to dig deep into what's going on there? Yeah, ultimately you've hit the nail on the head. It's about being curious, both people being curious. Curious yourself, about yourself, what's going on for me? Like when I get that emotional reaction, what's going on? Why am I emotionally reacting to this? Does it remind me of anything? Is there a theme? Do I know the uh, trigger that this is attached to? And it's getting curious about our partners. You know, when, we, when they're reacting to something, then we're going oh my gosh, that's such an overreaction. What the heck's that about? It's getting curious. Yeah, literally, what the heck is it about? Find out, you know, what's going on for you? Mm. You know, I, I hadn't meant to upset you, but I can see that you're upset. What what happened? Mm. You know, and then having that curious and loving conversation instead of getting defensive or attacking back or... Which is so hard to do, isn't it? It takes a lot of self-control and it, compassion. <laughs> absolutely. It is hard to do. And the reason it's hard to do is because you've got another brain mechanism kicking in. Mm-hmm. So basically what's happening in those situations is you've got the survival brain kicking in. And the survival brain only knows fight, flight, freeze, and it can only draw on old habitual ways of coping with things in those times. Because when it kicks in, what it does is it literally shuts off your thinking brain. Helpful, (laughs) just when you need it. Just when you need it most (laughs) and when you need to be most articulate about things, it literally shuts off that part of your brain. So it's kind of like you who you are, your essence, who you want to be and show up in the world. It's like you leave the building Mm. and what comes online is an animal. (laughs) And that's why it gets so... Primal. (laughs) Yeah, that's why it's two brains fighting with each other. It comes online, it only knows how to attack, defend, run away, freeze whatever it may do and then what will normally happen is that will then trigger the other person's survival brain to come online and then you've got basically what is the two dumbest parts of your brain's butting heads trying to solve a problem it's never going to happen what is some advice for people who find themselves in that situation should they just walk away and take a breather until they come down and then you know focus once their brains are back online or should we try to get control of ourselves in the moment and be more reasonable? <laughs> well, if you are um, an absolute master of control of yourself and maybe <laughs> practice 50 years of Buddhism or something, oh, yeah, then maybe living. in the moment you might be one of those unusual people who can get control of themselves. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I don't get control of myself. <laughs> Most really. Yeah. So, yeah, you've absolutely, you've got to just stop. In that moment, you've got to stop. And what I teach couples to do, first of all, is to learn how to recognize that they're getting an emotional reaction. Um, Because what you're wanting to do is rewire the brain. So the brain is, if you think of it like a train track system, the survival brain and what you do at the moment is hardwired to going one way. And that's straight to the survival brain and straight to that fight stuff. So we need to slow the brain down. And one of the ways to do that is do something really weird, like in that moment where you, you recognize, oh, I'm having an emotional reaction, which is the first thing you need to train yourself to do, you can literally go into your head and say in your head, I'm having an emotional reaction. Yeah. That in itself slows it down because that's weird. Your brain's going, what a weird thing to say right now. He's being a dick. <laughs> yeah. This isn't my fault at <laughs> yeah. all. It's all them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, I'm having an emotional reaction. Ah, oh. and that will bring you into a bit more um, consciousness to be able to then go, ah, oh, okay, this is one of those moments then. I need to stop this conversation. And normally what I do with couples is have them come up with a random word. And it needs to be a random word, not calm down or you're being they emotional ne- never really or works, anything like it? that. <laughs> Nothing like that works. That's more likely to get you a punch on the nose. Yeah, we don't want to go there. No. Um, so I have them come up with a random word. 
anything. A lot, for some strange reason, lots of people come up with pineapple. I don't oh, know. What well, the first word that came into my mind was banana. So well, clearly, <laughs> that's the second word that people come up with. So wow. number one is pineapple, second is banana. It's all about fruits. Oh, yeah, I know. Okay. <laughs> Fruity. Fruity. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, in that moment, when you ha- notice you're having that emotional reaction, you're going, oh, I'm having an emotional reaction. Banana. <laughs> And that's sort of quite funny as well. It's <laughs> funny, but you're not making light of the yeah, other sure. person because yeah. it's really important not to minimize their distress in that moment because that, that will escalate them as well. So when you're using the word banana, it's already pre-agreed upon in a time of calm that this is what we're going to do when we get into that state again. And when I say, or when either of us say the word banana, what we're actually communicating to the other person is, I love you too much to argue right now. And I'm Mm. recognizing that survival system has kicked in and this is not going to go well. It's going to be the same old cycle of argument that we're going to get into. And I'm going to hurt you. You're going to hurt me. And I don't want to hurt you. I love you. So we need to just stop where we are, go and soothe ourselves down Now, John Gottman, he would say when you're soothing yourself down, when you're taking that break, don't think about the argument. Go and do something distracting. Read a magazine, watch some TV or whatever. I'm not sure I agree with him, Mm -hmm. although he's well-researched, but I would also look at the research and say, well, they were in a certain situation and they're reading anyway. So I would say there was maybe other factors, but I'm not sure I agree with him because I think there's an opportunity when you're in an emotion to access all the information you need, much more than if you're trying to look at it with hindsight. Interesting. So when you're going and you're separating and you're calming down, you can be asking yourself, what was my emotional reaction? What was I feeling? Anger, frustration, blah, blah, blah. Why was I feeling that? What was the story? And this is where you want to tune into the narrative that you've started telling yourself. And the narrative will pretty much always be 100% negative. The reason for that about the other person, about the interpretation of what they've said. And the reason for that is when that survival brain kicks in, its job is to keep you physically alive. It's not concerned about your emotional happiness or your relationship. It's just about physical survival. So its job is to basically give you the most negative story. You know, what are the dangers? What are you needing to avoid? What is the worst twist on this that you're now going to have to deal with? So it's 100% negative. So when you go to calm down, you're going, okay, I've emotionally reacted. Now, what is this narrative I'm telling myself? Oh, yeah, look at that. It's all negative. The survival brain is like the little devil in the cartoons that pops up yeah. on your shoulder and it just gets hold of a foghorn and starts yelling in your ear all these negative twists. Some of it, sometimes it may be true, but most of the time it's not. Mm. Most of the time you're misunderstanding what's going on. That is such a helpful explanation of that negative narrative. Mm. I have never heard it quite explained like that. Like it's your brain is telling you the worst case scenario. Your brain's telling you the baddest it could possibly be so that you can survive that. Yeah. So if it turns out to be less fine, but let's go to the worst case Mm -hmm. because this is a life or death situation. That makes so much sense. Thank you for explaining that. Yeah. Because often I do wonder like, why the why the hell would my brain go there? It is so unhelpful and not useful to the ultimate goal of reconciliation or, or, you know, to solving this problem. But it's really, its job is to go to the worst case scenario. Yeah. 
Oh, that's so Because it's brilliant for our survival. Yeah. So, I mean, because if you're in a situation, like I used to live in Colorado, and one day I was sat on my couch, and a snake slithered out from between my legs across the lounge. Seriously. Now, <laughs> my survival brain immediately took over, shut off my thinking brain, and I was outside of the house before I consciously came back online going, oh my God, there's a snake in my lounge. Is it poisonous? Where are the kids? What do I do? How do I get it out? Because my brain doesn't want me sitting on the couch, pulling out Google, researching dangerous markings of Colorado and snakes, <laughs> because I'd have been bitten by it. So it just moves you out of the scenario. And then, you know, out of that scenario, I'm thinking, oh my God, where are the kids? So automatically my brain's going, worst case scenario, this snake's now going to bite the kids and I'm going to lose my kids. You know, so it just does that to prepare you for the worst possible yeah. scenario. So you can stay safe, avoid the area, figure out a way to do something differently. But in those arguments, you know, when we're away calming our brain, we're listening to this negative story that our brain's telling us, that's when we need to realize that that's not us. That's a biological mechanism. That's our animal kicking in. And so I like to think of it as a little character inside me that I don't like. He may have some good points occasionally, but most of the time I don't like it. Elizabeth Gilbert describes this character in her head. She describes them as the writer of Eat, Pray, Love, Elizabeth yes. Gilbert. And I went to see her give a talk and she talked about this as well. And she said she her character is like this dumb, burly cousin who comes in like, oh, I'm going to beat the crap out of that person. <laughs> um, and mine, I've decided, is Donald Trump. Oh, nice. Because <laughs> I don't want to listen to anything he says. <laughs> He's always so negative. Great. Yeah. Cool. So yeah. when it comes up, I'm going, okay, yeah, I I recognize it. I recognize you've probably got good intentions, but you're a bit dumb. So I'm not going to listen to you. And in that moment, you want to be remembering. And this is where I have couples bring up a memory of the time that they felt the most loved and the most loving towards their partner, because that is the intent you have to your partner. And that is the intent they have for you. So if in that moment, when you're hearing this negative narrative and twist on what they've just said, and they're trying to hurt me and whatever, you can go, oh, just a minute. I know that person. They're safe. They love me. I know their intention is to have a happy relationship and a loving relationship. And I know that they just want to be understood and cared about and they want the same for me. And that's going to help you soothe down. Mm-hmm. And then you go into, okay, so what do I need to do now? And that's where I'll give couples more tools, like the communication tools, how to come back and have that conversation without then escalating more and just be curious about each other just give that space for curiosity allowing the person to express what went on validating that that was okay that was their truth in that moment that their Mm. feelings were their feelings it's not they're not right or wrong they're just their feelings but that reminder of what you know I do love you so what do you need from me yeah that's such good advice so when couples come to you obviously they come for a myriad of reasons but are there common themes Are there more common issues than others? Yes, there are some themes. The biggest theme, I would say, well, and this is probably not what you mean, I'll get to themes, but the biggest problem is they've come too late. They've left it too long. People, I wish I could get out to everybody. You don't want to be going and using couples counseling when you're about to leave the relationship. You want to be using it because you don't know what you don't know. We don't get taught about relationships in schools. We don't get taught about how to do nonviolent communication in schools. And, And we might get it in a workplace, you know, workshop or something. But doing it with people at work is very different to doing it with 
somebody that you love at home. That you're so invested in. Yeah. Yeah. So you need slightly different tools. And we've got so much research on what makes couples work and what makes couples not work. So many practical things we can introduce to the relationship that will strengthen it, make it fun. I mean, how many people have this idea that you get into a relationship and you get married and have kids and then it's just dull. And you just got to suffer through it for the next however long you live. That is one of the questions that, oh, so I I should have said at the beginning of this, um, in the introduction that I have my own questions for you, but I put it out on social media and got so many questions in with people wanting to ask your advice on things. But that was one of them. Uh, This guy put it so beautifully. He said, why is it that as soon as you say I do, you suddenly feel I don't? Oh, that's brilliant. But I think that touches on what you're talking about, that, yeah, people can have an idea that, yeah, you have to endure a relationship yeah. once you're in it for the long haul. Absolutely. And I and I just think, why would you do that with this one life you've got to live? Why not make it fun and exciting and lots of sex and <laughs> you all, know, the, just good all stuff. the good stuff? Why would you not try and do that? And the answer to it is people just don't know how. So why are people waiting until they end, they're looking to end the relationship to come and get the information of how to do that? So I really wish couples would come before they get married to set it up for success and to constantly come and have those check-ins and tune-ups and say, you know, that tool you gave us worked for a while, but it's not working now. Don't go, okay, well, we just give up then. We just suck up this part of the miserable part of our relationship. Yeah, okay, well, let's find another tool. We've got incredibly creative brains. Let's use them to make happy relationships. Yeah. And it's not so, yeah, maybe we need to change the narrative and perhaps stigma, which there still is, unfortunately, about going to see a therapist in Mm. general, but maybe even more so to a couples therapist that you don't have to be in dire straits. There doesn't even have to be a significant issue. You you just yep. want to make your relationship the best it can be. Absolutely. And it could always improve from where it is, right? Absolutely. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, why not just try and have the best life you can possibly have? Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's always things you can learn. Um, you know, we go to university, learn about all sorts of things, but the thing that's the most important thing to us most of the time, we don't put any money or time or learning into how to be the best at being a partner or mm. or a parent or a whatever, you know, it's like, I do that. I mean, I suppose that's the bonus of doing my job is I get to put lots of money because we have to do three professional developments a year into training, into something that is incredibly important to me in my personal life as well as my professional life. Yeah. So yeah, we've got to learn. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, that is, yeah, great advice. So people come too late. They come so too late. So then when they do come... When they do come, so common things, of course, especially because the name of my business is Relationship Rescue, I get a lot of affairs. Uh-huh. Um, Which I did want to talk about. So yeah, we'll get into, <laughs> dive into affairs. We get a lot of the general conflicts around the power dynamic stuff. So the sharing of the household, the management of the household. Because that um, really matters, doesn't it? it the, does. Who stacks the dishwasher? It's a really important issue. Yeah, because, because it's not yeah. about the dishwasher. Yeah, it's, right. it's about, do you see me as an equal human being? And do you see what's going on in my life and my workloads? So you know that actually, you know, I've got a lot on my plate and, you know, you're asking me to do a bit too much. Mm-hmm. So the workload and parenting, different ideas about how to parent is another one finances. And then just, I think probably one of the most common themes is not knowing how to argue Mm. and the misery and the hurt and the loneliness that comes from that. I really want to connect. I really want to be able 
to say to you what's going on for me and what I'm struggling with. But we can't do that without, you know, getting into an argument and then me feeling like you're not understanding me, you're not hearing me. Yeah. And, and so I, then the emotional walls build up and they just distance. Uh, yeah. And for all those issues you said before, they would usually result in an argument. So almost whatever the substance of an argument, if you can't do it well, mm-hmm. it, it's the same issue, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. 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 So does that harken back to what you were talking about earlier about safe word, go and have some time apart, shut down your fight or flight brain? Is that what you Yeah, it does. That's, that's a starting point. But then, of course, you've got to have the tools to be able to have the conversation. Can we talk a bit about that? I think yeah. people would find that really interesting. So what, yeah. Yeah, what are some tools to argue Efficiently. <laughs> oh, efficiently. I, I think the, the key word you want to keep at the forefront of your mind is curiosity. Get curious about what's going on for them before you even formulate your response. That's the thing for most people is if somebody's trying to tell you something and you maybe disagree, they're not going to listen to your perspective until they first feel heard and really understood. Because mm. until they feel heard and really understood they don't believe that you're making a fully informed response. You haven't got all the information. And so you can't, I'm not going to really listen to you because you're not really getting all these different factors that are playing into, in my mind, that are coming into it. Mm -hmm. Um, That's just really important. But also that element of being really heard and understood is, I think, one of the big elements, and I've not seen it written about so much, but a big part of why we get into relationship. I think as human beings, we have this desperate need. Desperate's not quite the right, a a heart need, something, a soul need to feel seen and heard by somebody in the world, somebody special in the world that we matter to, that our opinion matters to. And if we don't have that, that's where a lot of psychological problems come from. You know, we have that real sense of loneliness. It's all, it reminds me of that. What's that saying? Where the tree falls in the wood? Does it really it not oh, fall if nobody hears it yes, or something like that? It doesn't make a sound if no one's there to Something hear it. along those yeah. lines, you know. So it kind of, yeah, it make, it's almost like if you've never been loved and heard and seen and understood and known, it's almost like in your, in your soul you're going, did I exist? Mm-hmm. It's like that deathbed thing. Have I loved well and have I been loved? It's like, it wasn't just, have I loved well? Have I been loved? It was, well. have I been loved? It's like, and that's almost like, did I exist? Mm. Yeah, I really relate to that, actually. I think that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I think it is very important to me for someone to see my true self mm. and love that true self as opposed to, you know, one of the masks that we all yeah. put on for various reasons throughout the day. So that just gets me to think, therefore, it is so important in any relationship, but particularly an intimate one, to be your authentic self, yeah. which involves being vulnerable, mm-hmm. which is a bit of a buzzword these last few years. You know, it's been championed by Brene Brown. Yeah, you love Brene. She's so great. She's she? she has a great podcast as well. This episode of The Most of It is powered by Blue, the mic of the internet. If you're thinking about creating a podcast, starting a YouTube or Twitch channel, or even if you just make a lot of Zoom calls, take a minute to think about your audio quality. The Blue Yeti USB mic is the internet's most popular mic, and it's easy to see why. 
It's really simple to use, it delivers premium sound quality, and it even looks great too. I have been a huge fan of Blue for a long time. Not only do they make fantastic microphones that I know I can always rely on, but I also really love their values, which are all about helping people find and amplify their voices. So it's a great match for this podcast. I love how my Blue Mic enables me to share my passion project with you and so do countless other creators all over the world. So if you're looking to bring pro-quality sound to whatever you do, Check out Blue, the mic of the internet. Yeah, why is vulnerability so important and why is it so hard to be vulnerable? Look, it's important because we've got to be vulnerable to be really seen for who we are. And like Brené has twisted that whole meaning, it takes an incredible amount of courage and bravery to be vulnerable. That's why it's so hard. It's bloody scary, you know, to be vulnerable with your heart with somebody that you know could break it. I can't think of anything that's kind of more scary. I'd rather go go and bungee jump. Yeah. Does it go back to the survival instinct or is that something else? It kind of does. I mean, you know, one of the questions you asked me was, why does love hurt? Yeah. In, In your list of questions, why does love hurt? Well, because. Well, obviously, vulnerability is love. Love is one of our basic primal needs. As much as food and water and air, we need love to survive. I mean, the the studies have shown this. You know, the the babies who, you know, in those Russian orphanages that weren't getting touched and held and loved, they Mm. died literally from lack of physical touch and love. I can't remember who it was, but somebody coined the phrase, failure to thrive, where, you know, if you just don't have that love, you know, you will, as a child, you could literally die. Um, But if you survive a a loveless childhood, you grow up to be very dysfunctional in adult life and Mm. not knowing how to read human communication cues and all sorts of weird things. So it's, it's incredibly important to our survival. But on that pain level, the research also shows that because of our need to be in attachment with somebody, when we're not in attachment or feeling unloved by them or having a fight with them, we know that it triggers our anxiety and our stress hormones and all of those things. There was a woman, a researcher called Glacia, who she made little blisters on women's hands and then she sent them back to their partners to argue. And what she found was that the nastier the argument the longer the blisters took to heal. So it actually impacts our immune system and our body's ability to repair as well. And other researchers in Israel showed that if you're in a loving relationship, you're more able to deal with life stresses and traumas and all of those sorts of things and recover quickly if you've got that. Another woman, oh, what was that research called? Cone. They told participants, female participants, that they may or may not receive an electrical shock to their feet. And as soon as they were told this, their stress hormones went up. But what they found was that if the female participants were able to hold the hand of their partner, their stress hormones didn't go up as much. And they registered lower pain levels than those who didn't get to hold the hand of their partner. So... Love has a physiological effect on us that that is good for our health when it's good and bad for our health when it's not good. I mean, there's more research that shows, you know, that when we are 
in a argument or a falling out or not in a good place with our partner, you know, it stimulates the same parts of the brain as physical pain. So when we say we're, you know, we the pain of love, it literally is felt as pain, you know. I, I really do believe that people literally can die from a broken heart because our body has a physiological need for it. Need for it and impacted by it in a physiological way. Yeah. I was listening to an interview a while ago and this woman's workplace had enabled people to take leave yeah. from heartbreak. Right. So, oh, excellent. Good idea, right? Like It is because heartbreak is grief. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we get grief leave. And I think people really, the discourse in society, you know, around breakup of relationships, because I guess it's so common, it's so minimalized, you know, when you're going through a breakup, it's like, eh, you know, you don't have people checking up on you like you do if you've had some, the partner die, yeah. but your brain is experiencing it as if the partner's died. Yeah, well, But it's even it's really more difficult because they're still there and you yeah. can still access them, but they don't want you. And it's like, oh my gosh, your brain's going into complex grief almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think we should get <laughs> leave for breakup relief. Yeah, and yeah, know that yeah we shouldn't minimize our own experience to a breakup, nor that of our friends or family no, and be and the best supports that we can. Absolutely. And the problem with the breakup of a relationship as well, we don't have, as human beings, we do this wonderful thing like create rituals around things to help us process things. And we have rituals around actual death with yeah. funerals and wakes and things like that, but we don't have a ritual around divorce and, no, and nothing and at all end of relationship. <sighs> yeah. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> no. Although there are, you know, there's people starting to do, you know, happy divorce products and things like that. And I know oh, really? some people who are having divorce parties when the when the divorce is nicely amicable, like kind of like conscious uncoupling. uncoupling. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's not really acknowledged in a way that I think would help us process if we are more supported in that and it was ritualized yeah somehow in some way yeah as a sort of a yeah a rite of passage yeah I mean when you get divorced you know two years after you separate in New Zealand and England at least you know you get a divorce certificate and that's That's it or dissolution dissolution of marriage certificate don't even call it divorce yeah right and that's it and you get this and you're like you're probably alone at home by yourself and this arrives and you're like oh so I'm divorced now that's the dream of my future, the dream of what family was going to be, it's, that's it. It's just gone. And I'm just here by myself, twiddling my thumbs, trying to process that. So tough. Yeah. So then what makes a good relationship? What is a good relationship? So a good relationship is one with all the cliches in it, you know, one that's got love, of course, um, trust, honesty, caring, kindness, support. One of the big things people want to feel is, have you got my back? You know, Mm. Um, are you on my side? Are you going to stand up for me? So it's all of those things. But we have tons of stuff out, John Gottman's research, that shows the practical things that couples do that are in good relationships that make such a big difference. Um, You know, he talks about the daily greetings. So when you come home and you see each other for the first time, you drop what you're doing and you go straight for each other and you make eye contact, you give each other a hug and you say, how was your day? And it's no more than three minutes just checking in with each other. How was your day? And then you're getting a heads up, you know, is this terrible day and you need and if it was you can say to your partner well what you need you want to go sit on the deck with a beer for half an hour and just you know have some time before you come into the family kind of thing or what is it that you need lots of appreciations people need to hear that they're doing a good job that right. what they're doing is seen and acknowledged men just as much as women 
and kids as well. So, you know, you can get that going throughout the whole family. But a lot of people don't know how to give appreciations and a lot of people don't know how to receive an appreciation as well. So, yeah, you know, if, it's, some, if it's chucked back in your face every time, oh, you look lovely. Oh, no, I don't. You know, yeah. If that keeps happening, that's pretty hard to continue with it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. because you want to be able to give love to your partner and, and know that they're taking it in and feeling the love that you're trying to give. So it's like little gifts. You don't want to bat it back at them. Yeah. So yeah, appreciations, having fun together and having clear expectations as well. You know, one of the things Gottman talks about is um, couples will create a relationship contract, which sounds very unromantic, but it helps be very clear or make very clear what the expectations are in the relationship, you know, um, who's doing what around the house, what are we agreeing upon as far as how we spend money, you know, if we spend more than $100, for instance, do we need to have a conversation about it or or not? A woman I interviewed for season one, mm. who researches love from a more academic perspective, she does that. So this is the second time that the contract oh, yeah. has come up and it's been very successful for her yeah. as well. I mean, it's great because, I mean, I work with a lot of executives and entrepreneurs. And so I often just use business analogy a lot of the time. I, I say, you know, you can do this in your business. So we want to bring those skills into the relationship. You know, when you have a, a new employee or a business partner, yeah, draw up a contract of what the expectations are and who's investing what, where, and all of that sort of thing. And it just clears the ground and clears the space for knowing what to expect and not having arguments or disputes. And if something does come up, you can come back to the contract. And of course, contracts within relationship, maybe, well, even within business too, as it grows, but certainly within relationships have to be reviewed regularly. You have to come back to it. But what are, you know, couples who you like, oh no, we don't want to do that. What I would say is then at least what you want to be doing is checking in with each other. I would say at least monthly, I have them lock in a time in their calendar and they have to put it down in their calendar as a can't do anything else. Like the only way that you're allowed to break that time and do something else is if somebody's died or somebody's on the way to hospital right. or in hospital. Yeah. Um, but that no time, work commitments. No, yeah. Nope, you've got to put it, it. Yeah. Yeah. And if there is something, maybe there is a big work commitment. I know, you know, with your job, sometimes the, you've got True. to be a bit more flexible yeah. you're not regular hours and things like that. You discuss it, talk about what's coming up. But basically that time is a time when you're going to sit down and it doesn't have to be that long, but just to check in, you know, how are we doing? Are we on track? All those tools that we put in, are they still working? Um, how have you felt loved by me this last month? You know, how can I love you more? Those are two great questions to be asking your partner on a regular basis. And that keeps you conscious about your relationship because that's one of the biggest things that breaks down relationship is that we do it unconsciously. We have ideas about relationship and we create a relationship based on those ideas and they're cultural. We think it's just going to magically work and we're going to live happily ever after. We don't do it consciously. We don't check in with each other and we don't check in with ourselves and that's a big problem in our arguing because we may come with complaints and criticisms and you did this and I'm not happy because you made me do this or made me feel this way. And then we leave it at that and we expect our partner to know how to fix that or figure out what it was that we really wanted them to do. So it's really important that we come and bring the problems, but we also have given some thought to, well, what did I need? Yeah. So that I can bring the solution as well. Yeah. You mentioned the culture and the expectations mm. that come from culture. Are Western ideas and expectations about relationships 
accurate or helpful or do we expect too much? Unrealistic. Okay, right, right. (laughs) Yeah, they are completely unrealistic. They're getting better, I think. I think this next year, it's going to be really interesting. I think for a start, I think relationships are changing rapidly. And I think that's for large part due to internet and access to more information. And for our generation who still were raised on those Disney princess movies with the prince coming along and sweeping us off our feet and living happily ever after, that's left us with pretty unrealistic expectations of relationship. And this is probably why arranged marriages in the research has has been found to be much happier and much more successful than love marriages. And that's because people go into arranged marriages with much lower expectations and they have to consciously love the person. They have to learn and they have to do love. How do you want to be loved? So there's more communication going on there. But we old schoolers have crazy ideas about love. For a starter, just the idea that we're going to be meeting some magical soulmate, which, you know, for many people, there's just one soulmate in the world, and they're going to make us happy for the rest of our lives. It's not how we were built. You know, we evolved, and there's a lot of research that suggests we were not a monogamous species. Right. But obviously today, our ideal is monogamy. Mm. Um, But we are kind of hardwired to affairs and things like that because our brain loves novelty Mm. and variety and we also crave as much as we crave connection as humans we also crave freedom and that's what Esther Perel talks about with her her work around affairs she talks about it's not usually about the person is unhappy with their partner or their partner's not giving them enough sex or whatever happy people have affairs People who are happy in the relationship, getting the best sex they've ever had, have affairs. I had a partner who had an affair. I've only had had one partner have an affair on me, which is devastating, by the way. People really minimize the effects, the trauma that comes from affairs. Um, But he had an affair when we were really super happy and he claimed, you know, and he would tell people, (laughs) tell people, not that I like, but he would say his best sex I've ever had. But he still had an affair. So it was like, that doesn't make any sense. What's going on here? Because it's not about the partner or the relationship. It's about the craving for autonomy and freedom and being able to just experience a sense of self and that novelty aspect, the excitement of the naughtiness of it. Yeah. So a few people did write in and were wanting to know about affairs if it automatically means the end of a relationship or if it doesn't, how best to navigate it? If it does, how do you ensure that you don't bring that trauma into another relationship? Mm. Or if it's not the end, how do you, can a relationship exist without trust? Can you trust again? Those sorts of questions. Yeah. Yeah, we've, yeah so, I've got a lot of them. Right. Yeah. So yes, absolutely. You can, can, and, and most people do not leave the relationship. You can have a successful relationship after an affair. In fact, the affair can often be the best thing that happens to the relationship because often it's the thing that gets people into couples counseling. So <laughs> just um, before it's too yay. late. <laughs> um, but it's at that point then, especially if they get the right sort of help, that they can now get conscious about their relationship and what they want and, ha- and learn the tools and have those discussions that they need to have. Now, as far as the repair goes, that really is going to depend very much on what the betraying partner does and how he or she handles it. If the betraying partner minimizes the 
trauma that they've caused, if the betraying partner says things like, oh, you know, well, I've said I'm sorry, we just need to get over it, Um, you just need to trust me. If the betraying partner doesn't give space for the grief and the trauma that they've caused in their partner and be there to listen to it, to sit next to them in the grief. And And the grief that a person goes through with an affair is just like death. So you're going through all of those things of anger and denial and depression and, you know, just all of those things are coming up and they're coming up randomly, you know. If they can't be strong enough to shoulder the consequence of their behavior and to be there to support the partner and hold them in their emotion and say, you know, I know I've done this to you. I'm so sorry. It's not going to recover. And the key is, and the thing that people really slip upon is they may acknowledge it. They may take responsibility and ownership for the behavior and they may say sorry. But the bit that won't allow the person to move on and to build trust is if they don't understand what the person has gone through and what they're still going through. If they can't have that empathy and the person feels like you don't get what that did to me and what I'm still having to deal with on a daily basis and the trauma that comes up on a daily basis, if you don't get that, then I am not confident that you understand the consequences so great that you won't do it again. Yeah, that makes sense. I can trust you if you know what you've done. And I can see it in your eyes and in your tears and in your compassion for me that you really understand this is an awful thing you've done to me. I can trust that you're not going to do it again because I believe you're a good person. Mm. But if they're not giving you that, it's very hard to recover and very hard to build trust. Really great advice for anyone out there that needs it. But that's the... Piece I would of the puzzle. highly recommend a great resource if you Google Affair Recovery. And they have some brilliant resource videos on YouTube around all the things that you have to deal with in an affair and in recovery from affair. It's really good because it helps um, the person who's done the betraying to understand what the betrayed person will be going through, but also for the betrayed person to understand what the betrayer is going through. Because especially if they're a good person, and a lot of men A lot of men tend to be in this category where they're exceptionally gullible and have kind of slipped into an affair (laughs) because they haven't seen how they're being kind of, you know, led down. Drawn into it. Drawn into it, yeah. Interesting. And so they find themselves in an affair and then feeling really bad about it. So, you know, a lot of men really struggle to face the shame that they feel after it. Okay, thank you. That's, yeah, that's really, really useful information. I just want to go back one step. We were talking about what makes a good relationship and that we do have unrealistic expectations. So then how, what are some realistic expectations? You know, how should we be feeling about our relationship and is how we feel about our relationship actually the most important thing? Meaning like our feelings are very changeable and fleeting. Can we trust them? Do you know what I'm sort of getting at? (laughs) I would say that probably you 
can't trust them if your feelings are telling you negative stories about the other person because those feelings are probably coming from that survival brain. Uh It's just got a little quieter foghorn going on. Yeah, probably not. You need to check it out. Just always check it out with your partner. You know, I noticed you've been a bit distant lately. I just want to check, is everything okay with you? Are you okay? And it's now a good time to talk, you know, or I'm here when you want to talk, you know. But what I would say is, What helps or what is really vital is that people do trust their gut. So if you have a gut feeling about something, you're probably accurate. A gut feeling that sustains. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't change. Yeah. But, you know, people know the difference between they're having an emotional reaction to I'm having a gut feeling, I think. I think that people can feel that slight difference. And so check out with the other person, open the conversation. Of course, most people are terrified to have those conversations though, because they're worried that it's going to kick a fight or they're going to be misunderstood or they're going to be rejected. So that's where you need to just learn the tools to do those things. How good, how okay does a relationship have to be for it to be a good one? You know, what what sort of expectations are... Should I just settle kind of thing? (laughs) I guess, or what is settling versus just being realistic about your experience of a relationship? Yeah, well, I think the first thing that people have to realize is that if they're expecting that excited chemistry that they felt when they first met somebody, that's not gonna happen because that literally is chemistry in the brain. So what the research shows around that is when our brain's looking to get into relationship, it's looking for three things. It's looking for physical attraction, it's looking for familiarity, and it's looking for novelty contradictory for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because we're great we're as human beings. We're we, want contradictory. we want yeah. everything we want. right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so obviously the physical attraction thing is meant to do with, you know, they're going to provide us with nice, healthy offspring. The novelty, you know, I think we can conclude is probably more to do with diversifying the gene pool. We don't want to match with our brother or our sister, True. but also our brain just loves novelty. But the familiarity aspect is, is this person going to make me feel safe, secure and loved? Now, our brain doesn't come preloaded with the software or the programming that says these people with these characteristics are going to make you feel safe, secure, and loved. That's something we learn through our experience. And of course, the time when we most felt safe, secure, and loved was when we were a baby because all our needs are met at that point. And the other thing about being a baby, of course, is your survival absolutely survives on forming attachment with your caregivers. So as a baby, we're imprinting those characteristics on our brain. But as a baby, we don't have language yet. So we're not putting little narratives in there going, oh, mummy's really smiley and loving and cuddly and daddy's really funny and tickly. You know, we're just inputting them as a feeling. Mm -hmm. So when we go on a date, meet someone for the first time on a date, we start talking. And when we're talking, those characteristics start to pop up and our brain is unconsciously logging them going tick, 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 tick. Now, if we get enough ticks, and they, those characteristics match close enough to the characteristics of our main caregivers, the research shows our brain produces a chemical reaction. Now, the purpose of this chemical reaction is to basically put on rose-tinted glasses <laughs> because what you need to understand is we have a brain that evolved where its natural resting state is to be really negative, And by that, I mean it's constantly searching our environment for the negatives in it. To keep us safe. To keep us safe, yeah. And so when we get into a relationship, we don't want to be looking at the negatives in the person and going, oh, their eyes are a bit wonky and they're a bit, you know, thinking they know it all or whatever. So the chemical reaction happens. And what what that chemical reaction is, we get a spike in dopamine, which is, of course, the chemical that makes us feel excited and it keeps us wanting more. We get a drop in 
serotonin, which keeps us obsessing about the person. So serotonin is also, you know, people with obsessive compulsive disorder also get drops in or have lower serotonin. So we're obsessing about them and we get an increase in neuroadrenaline. And the purpose of that is to give us more energy to our thinking brain, because we're basically going to get to need to know this person and we're going to put more effort into romancing them or whatever. And we need more energy to that part of the brain because the thinking part of our brain, our executive function, takes a lot of energy to run. And its job normally is to get things into habit as quickly as possible. So we don't want it getting this person into habit. So we have that chemical high and that's what we feel like, excitement, the obsession, and that's going to get us on more dates. And hopefully somewhere along the line, we end up in bed together where we hopefully will orgasm. And when we orgasm, we get another flood of chemicals that we, you know, call the attachment chemicals, Mm -hmm. oxytocin. And now that's going to get us in relationship. The research shows that chemical high or those combination of chemical highs lasts on average between nine to 12 months. Okay. What else lasts nine to 12 months, Antonia? Oh, having a baby. Yeah. So our body (laughs) and our brain has evolved this really efficient system for keeping the human race going hasn't evolved a system for relationship. Hmm. So once that wears off. Dang it. (laughs) Yep. Um, Once that wears off, the rose-tinted glasses fall off. And by that time, a lot of people have moved in together or they're in a committed relationship. And that's where our brain comes back online. And when our brain comes back online, it's going to bring with us all our experiences that we've had, all those childhood wounds and all those sorts of things, they're all going to come back online. And at the same time, we're not getting as much energy going to our executive function. So our brain isn't showing as much interest in the person and we're starting to take them for granted a bit more. And we're not having those long conversations that we could have on the phone all night. And now you're looking at going, staying up all night, staring into each other's eyes. I know, (laughs) I know. So, and that's where we start having problems. So if we can keep those sorts of things going, we're going to have a better relationship. But most people expect that they're going to feel that chemistry all along. And that's what love is. Mm. That's not love. It's Mm. literally chemistry in your brain trying to get you pregnant. (laughs) Um, <laughs> yeah. So love is an action. It is something that you have to wake up in the morning and be conscious about how can I love my partner today? And, you know, what is it that I can do? And you have to be conscious about it. You have to do love. That's such good advice. So we have to take, change our idea about love to be a passive feeling that mm-hmm. we experience mm-hmm. to an active behavior that yeah. we put out. Yeah. Yeah, wow. And from those behaviors, we're going to get those feelings. Um, Uh You mentioned eye contact. Eye contact is exceptionally important. And especially when you're trying to get, you know, after you've had that conflict and you're going to come back and have that conversation, get into eye contact. Because the research shows it's incredibly good at conflict diffusion. There's a beautiful research that was recreated and it was going around in a little video on Facebook a few years ago. And basically what they did is they put two people who were traditionally on opposite side of conflicts, like a Trump supporter, an Obama supporter, a pro-lifer, a abortion, you know, it's the, the traditional strong conflicts. Yeah. And they said, all we want you to do is sit for three minutes and look in each other's eyes. Don't gesture, don't speak, don't do anything. Just look in each other's eyes. And universally after these participants did that, they wanted to get up. They wanted to find about each other's families, each other's lives. They were hugging. It was just beautiful. And all they did was look into each other's eyes. Like, wouldn't it be great if we could solve wars that way? It's like, yeah. instead of lining soldiers up with guns, we just said, stand on the field. Just look into each just other's eyes. Just stare at each other for a while. 
Yeah. Conflict resolved. Wow. And it's something that we do when we start relationship. We go on a date, someone looking longingly in each other's eyes. With complete attention on them, right? Not half on our phones or, you know, looking at a screen. But we lose it. The amount of couples that I have sitting in the room and start them teaching them the communication technique, and I always start with doing the eye contact and asking them, how does it feel to make that eye contact? The amount of couples who are uncomfortable with it, it makes me so sad. It breaks my heart because I'm just like, oh my gosh, that's like the most basic thing you can do that says, I see you. (laughs) I literally see you. I literally see you. Yeah. And we're not good at it. We don't do it. We're not good at it. But it's something, so yeah, do more of it. Yeah. (laughs) See each other, literally and inside each other. See what's going on. Notice what's going on for each other. That's such good advice. And I love how everything you're saying, whilst it's perhaps not necessarily easy to do, it's actually quite straightforward. It's easy to do if you do it. It's perhaps not instinctively comfortable. Yeah. It may feel uncomfortable, but you. But everybody can do this. It's within all of our power and capabilities yeah. to look each other in the eye, to say hello when they get back from work, to give a compliment, to be appreciative. Like none of this, you have to go and sit on top of a mountain to discover. Yeah. It's all very basic, everyday things. Yeah. The tools are so incredibly simple, but you're right. We find it so hard to do it. And just on that greeting each other thing, I like people to think, you know, what does a dog, what does your dog do when you walk in the door? And we love our dogs. Oh my gosh. You know, we would, and there's so many people who'd much rather be greeted by their dog than their partner because the dog just makes them feel so loved. And oh my gosh, I'm so happy you're home. It's just wonderful to see you. I say, greet your partner like that. Yeah, that's such good advice. No one has a bad relationship with their dog. (laughs) I know, I know. So wouldn't it be lovely if we could walk into a room and feel that energy from somebody that they're so happy to see us? Wouldn't that be awesome if everybody did that? (laughs) It it would be so wonderful. So if you could give couples or anyone in a relationship, say, three bits of advice Mm. that might help them create and sustain healthy, positive relationships – what would your answer be? First bit of advice is get some couples counselling <laughs> to be set up with the tools for success. And if you don't want to, another more cost-effective way is to do something like the Imago Couples Workshop um, that's run here in Ponsonby, but they run all around the world. Imago is a really lovely couples therapy approach, but the strongest element of Imago is the communication technique. It gives you a communication technique that eliminates the possibility for conflict, and it gives you a communication technique that helps you get down into the deep soul of each other, you know, that deeper connection. I don't know about you, Antonio, but I hate cheesy workshops. And so these couple workshops are not like that at all. Uh-huh. So for all the men out there who are going, hell no, I'm never going to do that. It's given as an instructional thing from the front. And then you break off into your couples to do the little exercises yourselves. So I'd highly recommend doing, you know, that one or the emotionally focused therapy couples workshop as well. Do something like that to set yourselves up for success. You invest in your career, invest in your relationship, because I'll tell you now, if your relationship goes, it's going to cost you a hell of a lot of money. So, you know, and a hell of a lot of emotional pain. So invest in it, get a workshop. Second thing I'd say do is learn empathy. Mm. Learn to want to empathize with your partner, get curious about what's going on for them. That's where a lot of couples feel a lot of betrayal of trust. 
And I think John Gottman's story is a great example of this. So he tells a story where he's led in bed one night and he's reading his mystery novel and he's got one chapter to go to find out who did it. But he decides he's going to go get himself ready for bed, brush his teeth, that sort of thing, before he settles down to find out who did it. So he heads on into the bathroom and as he goes in the bathroom, he sees his wife's there brushing her hair and she's looking a bit sad. So he works past her, like, you know, hiding his eyes from her, you know, trying not to catch her, catch her, you know, oh God, she's looking for, oh God, oh God, this means I'm not, oh, I need to talk. Oh, no, I don't want to do this now. I want to read my book. <laughs> and then he da- it dawns on him, ah, oh, this is a moment where I can betray her or this is a moment where I can build trust. Mm. So instead he turns around, he takes the brush from her hand and starts brushing her hair and he says, what's going on for you, hun?" And that was a moment of building trust instead of betrayal. And a lot of couples miss those little moments. Some couples miss the big moments, like not being there at the birth of their child or not going to their partner with to the death of their parents' funeral or something like that. Those little moments of betrayal are really important not to miss. If we are empathizing, we're curious about what's going on for a partner, we're noticing them and we're asking and just listening that's going to really help that feeling that I'm important, I'm noticed, I exist in the world, somebody cares about me, somebody's got my back. But for you, you know, the happiness research also shows when we're there for others, when we do things for others, it helps our happiness yeah, too. Right. It makes yeah. us feel good about ourselves. It's how we're supposed to be, an attachment with yeah. someone else. Yeah, it's a mutually beneficial thing. It's like, why the heck do we yeah. find it so hard? <laughs> yeah. We're both going to be rewarded from it. It's a win-win situation. Yeah, it's like selfishly unselfish. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. I don't. Th- I, I really have found it very hard to think of anything that we do that is actually not selfish in any way. Mm. There really isn't anything. So we do get something. Like I sometimes I will, if I know f- you know the friends are struggling or they're down or whatever, I might make a little care package and just leave it on their door anonymously because I don't like. I don't like the oh thank you very much and right. like, you know yeah. that sort. Of, I want to do it so that they just know somebody's somebody's seen, somebody cares, and they matter. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want it to be about me. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect Um, sense. But even though I'm not wanting it to be about me, I still feel good about doing it. Yeah, you get the kickback. So I'm still benefiting. (laughs) Yeah, of course. You know, even if they don't know who did it. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, noticing, doing, being there, being kind. That's a lovely one. And what, do you have a third? I think you've got to be willing to be vulnerable and be willing to let somebody into your world. I think... You acknowledge the fear of being vulnerable, but do Which it anyway. Which we all have, right? Yeah. No one's immune from that. Yeah, yeah. but do it anyway. Mm. Yeah. That's it. That's great advice. I have so many more questions written down oh, that I wanted to day, ask you. <laughs> I know, and also that people have written in and asked, so I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for people listening, so I didn't get to ask your question, but there's, it's a big topic. There's oh, yeah. so much to talk about, but I do have to let you leave. So uh, just to finish I ask all my guests the same final three questions. Uh-huh. So the first one is, what is the most significant lesson that you've learned? To slow down and if there's time to stop, because I don't know, I've been trying not to speak very fast on this because I'm always told I speak too fast. Um, because <laughs> I'm, right. <laughs> I'm constantly doing I speak fast. I'm constantly thinking I need to be doing something. I'm an active rester. I've learned to slow down and to actually pause in moments and notice where I am and notice what's going on and most importantly to notice the people I'm with 
Mm. and that moment. So just slow down that's and a, be present. That's with the a, such a good I'm lesson. With. I very much relate to that one yeah, as well. It's so hard. Yeah, it's really if you're hard. A fast person. <laughs> just always in a rush, even when you're not in a rush. I know. <laughs> yeah. I know. That's me. Yeah. Uh, and what is a lesson that you still are learning? I'm still learning that I'm learning. I don't think you ever stop learning. I can read all the research on relationships and it could come out with one thing and then, you know, next year there'll be another research project that's done that says the complete opposite. So I'm always learning. I think whilst I can read all these academic papers and that's all very nice, I think the most valuable place to learn is from people, from clients, from friends. That's the real research. That's the real, yeah. So always learning. I love... um, John Keats saying, I can't remember exactly what it is, but it goes something along the lines of never make your mind up about anything. Let your mind be a thoroughfare of thoughts. That's good. Yeah, because I think you should never, I just don't think we can hold a definite opinion on something like this is the absolute truth because we change as humans, something new comes out in research. There's always something new to learn and there's always a different perspective and different opinion and I just love hearing them all and being open to learning and changing my mind and changing my opinion yeah so yeah yeah that is great that's such a a beautiful lesson to be continuing to learn Mm. and so finally uh Janine in your opinion how do we make the most of our lives we make the most of our lives by being present and loving Mm, we just got to love and be loved. Allowing ourselves to be loved as well. A lot of people can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we need to work on because that's at the core of it all. That's what we're going to be thinking about on our deathbed. Did we love well and were we loved? Mm. Thank you so much, Janine. Again, I just wish we could keep talking, but... That was really wonderful. Thank you so much for being here and for sharing all your wisdom and knowledge. It's really useful and I know that people will get a lot out of it. So thank you very much. Thanks for letting me have the opportunity. I'm glad it's got out there some information and hopefully it'll help some people. Yes, that's right. It definitely will. Thank you. So there we go. So much good stuff in there. I love how all of Janine's ideas are really logical and practical and all within our grasp if only we understand it and then put our minds to it a bit so I hope you really enjoyed that and if you are interested in seeing Janine she is based in St Heliers in Auckland but also does online Zoom sessions with couples. Her clinic is called Relationship Rescue and you can find out more information about that online. Thank you very much for tuning in today. And if you did enjoy the show, please do rate, review and subscribe to The Most of It as this helps other people know that we are here. And once again, thank you so much to my producers, The Raw Collective. You guys rock. See you next time.